You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. See a lot of red shirts out there. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to tonight's program with Inform of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Clara Jeffrey, editor in chief of Mother Jones. Tonight, we're joined by Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. On December 14th, 2012, I'm sure a date a lot of us remember. Uh, Shannon was a mother of five and a former communications executive who, like many of us, were horrified to learn that day of the tragic Sandy Hook Elementary school shooting that took the lives of 21st graders and six educators. She decided to start Moms Demand Action, which has since grown into one of, if not the largest, grassroots network in America, with chapters in all 50 states and millions of supporters. Some of you are here tonight. (laughs) She has a new book out, Fight Like a Mother, How a Grassroots Movement Took on the Gun Lobby and Why Women Will Change the World. So welcome, Shannon. Thank you. I think like most people, most parents certainly, um, know where they were when they first heard about the, the shooting at Newtown. You know, I know for us, like at Mother Jones, we rushed to do what journalists did. We put out stories. We started planning how we'd up our gun coverage more broadly. And then I'm sure like many of you, I ran to my kids' preschool and we all, you know, held back tears and thanked the teachers. That night, you went home and logged in to Facebook and wrote a call to action. You're a mom, but you're also an experienced communications professional. Did you know what you were about to start? I had no idea. Absolutely no idea. I had gone online and and looked for something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, thinking, surely this already exists. It's my moment to get off the sidelines. I'm devastated by what's happened. I'm angry that I'm seeing pundits and politicians on my television set saying the solution to this crisis is more guns. And I'm going to go ahead and join what's already been started. And I couldn't find anything. I found some mail-run think tanks in Washington, D.C. I found some one-off state organizations, also mostly run by men. And I knew I wanted to be part of a badass army of women across the country. And so I started this Facebook page, and, and I appreciate the compliment about my communications background, but the fact that I called it One Million Moms for Gun Control should tell you that I was alone in my kitchen and not with a focus group. Um, <laughs> my daughter, who is gay, told me hours later that One Million Moms was a group trying to get J.C. Penney not to be their spokesperson. Uh, so that was bad. And I soon after got a call from Representative Carolyn McCarthy, whose uh, husband and son were shot on the Long Island Railroad. And I'm in my kitchen. I get this call from a Washington, D.C. area code, and I pick it up, and she says, no one uses the phrase gun control. We've been waiting for moms and women to organize across the country, but we can't do it with that name. So regardless to say, we we changed our name a couple weeks later. So what made you think that the rubric of moms and an organization, at least initially led by moms, could be a game changer? I intuitively felt that women, but in particular moms, were the yin to the gun lobby's yang that the gun lobby had made this group of vocal extremists, a vocal minority, afraid their guns would be taken away. But 80 million moms in this country, regardless of political party, especially that week, that day, were afraid their children would be taken away. And that if we could get together and unite on this issue, that we could quickly solve it, just like we solve so many issues in this country. You speak about the superpower of moms, and I think we've seen in, in this movement and in other political organizing the last couple of years how women um, use skills that they use in their jobs and, and their home, but maybe never thought that they could use those to affect massive political change. Tell me what you think those are. Well, first of all, you know, we spend a lot of time negotiating. Anyone here who has kids, more than one, you know that that's a big part of your job. Um, we spend a lot of time budgeting and, and planning for family spending. Um, and also, we're multitasking mofos. I mean, we, you know, <laughs> there's nothing I can't do all at the same time. And that really became true when I became a woman and a mom. But the other thing is that when you spend any time in a state house, 
you very quickly realize that these are not rocket scientists. Um, <laughs> I would trust very few of them to get me a cup of coffee, let alone make the laws that protect my family and my community. And that's why so quickly our volunteers have moved from shaping policy to making it, because they, they realize that the skills they have as a mom have qualified them to do this job. You know, it's interesting because throughout, you know, decades and, you know, hundreds of years, women have really been at the forefront of some of the biggest um, social changes, even when they had no power, um, whether it was abolition or suffrage or temperance or child labor. Um, and in fact, you know, our, our the namesake for Mother Jones, I think, is just worth uh, telling you guys, because it's sort of an interesting corollary to your group. She, you know, she lost her husband and her kids to yellow fever and later became an activist, named herself Mother Jones and made herself look older than she really was and kind of dowdier and wore this sort of already out of, of style uh, form of dress. Her thinking was that no one would beat down a grandma at the head of a, like a minor strike or whatever. And and I'm wondering in the same way how you think that having an army of, you know, not only women and not only moms at this point, but, yep. an, but an army of moms in red shirts kind of deflects that kind of anger and, and just takes the wind out of protesters, counter-protesters, or perhaps the legislators. We are mothers and others at this point. I mean, we have become sort of the mad of gun safety, um, in fact, we're much bigger than most organizations in the country. And I think it's because we've built this brand, you talk about the red shirts, that really make women feel empowered. And the other thing we've learned is that motherhood um, can be used as a weapon against you unless you use it as a tool. I can't tell you how many times the gun lobby has attacked me and said, you know, I must drink boxed wine in my driveway and take Xanax and uh, I'm not a real mom and all these insults that are sort of mom-centered and, and woman-focused. And we have started to take motherhood and use it as a tool. We only hold 20% of the lawmaker positions in this country. Um, we're less than 5% of Fortune 1000 CEOs. But when we speak, lawmakers listen. And we weren't even showing up before. So it's, it's not like it's all of these volunteers in red shirts versus an equal member of gun extremists or even NRA members. It's all of us versus one or two gun lobbyists. Mm -hmm. And when, when lawmakers see that, it makes a difference. You know, when you guys were first going, uh, there were certainly a number of high-profile instances when moms volunteers were confronted by open carry activists um, and essentially... The, the visual, if for those of you who somehow don't remember this, was that, you know, usually large guys with really large assault weapons um, confronting you. And that just must have been terrifying to you as a leader of an organization, as well as terrifying to, of course, those frontline volunteers and organizers. Do you still face that kind of physical intimidation out there? We do. Uh, open carry is legal in 45 states. It's not legal here in the state of California, but where I live in Colorado, you can walk up and down Pearl Street with an AR-15 strapped to your chest, but not a dog. Um, and that's the absurdity of the gun laws in our country. And one of the early examples you're talking about are volunteers, four of them, were having a membership lunch in a restaurant. They looked out the window and 40 people were pulling up in pickup trucks and pulling long guns out of their cars and just holding them and posing with them and waiting for these women to come out of the restaurant. And there's nothing the police could do because it's perfectly legal again in 45 states. Um, and, and we do still see that. I think they realized that was a very bad visual uh, that went viral and it didn't, it didn't do what they had hoped it would do, which was to silence and intimidate us. It turned on them. But even this last weekend, it was wear orange. And in Ohio, um, a lot of armed men wearing orange showed up at our event again, to intimidate and silence us. And, and when, when that happens, do you think the visual and the public sympathy um, is more likely to go to you because it is mostly a group of women and, and with that kind of mom's identifier again? I do. I, I think um, that's why they do, don't do it quite as much as they used mm -hmm. to because they realize that it, it, it didn't have the impact they wanted it to. But that said, I also think it's so important to show America what does open carry look like? It's how we got Starbucks and so many other companies to change their policies because when you see someone with a gun in their pocket or an AR-15 strapped to their chest ordering a latte, you realize that there's something very wrong. 
with this country. Did did those kind of corporate boycotts and corporate movements, you guys did, let's see, Starbucks or was it Burger King, Target? Chipotle. Uh, Burger Chipotle. King was not one of them. <laughs> Chipotle was my favorite. But um, there were a bunch of companies in the early days. And just to kind of explain the genesis. So I saw on the news that Starbucks was no longer going to allow smoking 20 feet outside its stores. And so I called and said, will you still allow open carry? And they said, yes, we're still going to follow the law. And our volunteers said, well, we're more afraid of secondhand bullets than secondhand smoke. So we embarked on a a campaign called Skip Starbucks Saturdays. We were too small to do a boycott. Um, And even then, the soccer moms gave me a really hard time about not having coffee (laughs) on Saturday. But within three months, Howard Schultz came out on television and said, guns are no longer welcome in our stores. And we replicated that using hashtag like burritos, not bullets for Chipotle and other companies. But that was the early days when companies did not want to talk about this issue. Now we have companies like Levi's, like Dick's Sporting Goods, like Tom's Shoes that are coming to us and saying, not only do we want to have the right policies, but we actually want to be part of your coalition. The, the, the Dick's change, um, after Parkland seemed like a particularly important, uh, corporate cultural shift. Um, I, I don't know how many folks here have, have, you know, frequent Dick's. A lot is a great, huge, mm-hmm. massive, it means there's everything in there. But the gun section in many, or maybe all of them, is quite huge. This was not a small decision on their part, um, culturally and perhaps for sales. What what did you hear about why they did that? Um, was it just a sort of post-Parkland reaction, or they had been leading up to this? I think they had been leading up to it. And, and it was certainly Parkland, but also many of their employees are based in Pittsburgh. And then there was the horrific shooting at the synagogue. So it has been a gradual change, but something I think that was turbocharged by these horrific shooting tragedies. Uh, I think it's incredibly brave. They kind of said, you know, we're, we're not going to sell semi-automatic rifles anymore. And then they moved it to, well, in fact, we're actually getting rid of much of the gun sales in across the, the company. And at first, they suffered financially because of it, but they seemed to be back on track. And they kind of said all along, we don't care. We want to be on the right side of history on this issue. Um, and, and the NRA knew that it was a huge cultural shift because they attacked them so mercilessly over it. Um, but that's how change happens. And, and I'm, I'm curious, um, do you see that kind of col- uh, corporate leverage being used in the next two years? Or is it, it, did you guys kind of get what you feel you can get on that front right now? I mean, is that sort of actively a part of what you're looking for? We are more these days partnering with companies, mm-hmm. um, much like we are creative people and influencers and others who want to come to the table and be part of our coalition. I'm still hopeful that someday Kroger's will uh, change its policy. That was a campaign we started. We, we lost a couple of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think the future of gun safety will be that companies will do the right thing to protect their customers when lawmakers don't protect their constituents. Um, you personally have faced a lot of threats. Tell us what you feel comfortable sharing about that. Sure. Um, within hours, uh, the threats of death and sexual violence started against me, against my daughters, um, letters, emails, people driving by my house. And I can remember I called the police in the early days. I lived in Indiana. And the officer who came to my house said, well, that's what you get when you mess with the Second Amendment, ma'am. And I realized that I was sort of on my own, (laughs) but also that much like the open carry protests we're talking about, that that isn't meant to intimidate and silence me and our volunteers. And if we lose our children, we have nothing left to lose. So we weren't going to do that. It's been more interesting since the NRA is under some, I'm sure we'll talk about the, the troubles they're experiencing, but they've started attacking me more and more, I think, to distract from what they're going through. And, I mean, the death threats in the last three weeks have been a reminder of what it was like in the early days. It's been that intense. But I, I'm hopeful that it's a good sign that that uh, they're losing a lot of their power. And given all that, you're still not at all shy about mixing it up on Twitter. <laughs> um, why, why is being so personally visible and, and confrontational even 
a good strategy because I, I get the sense you don't do anything without thinking about its strategic implications. <laughs> you know, um, I'm happy to be the tip of the spear. There needs to be someone who will absorb the blows and also correct the NRA's misinformation. Um, they have been spreading it for decades, and it's almost become part of the American vernacular. All of the the myths that they've used as propaganda. And I think it it is an important role that I play, which is to take them on when they are wrong or when they are lying and to point it out. Um, the other piece of it is, you know, after mass shootings for so long, people would say, oh, it's too early to talk about. It. We can't politicize a tragedy. Um, I immediately when I started the organization said, we're going to talk about this when there is a tragedy because there's no better time to talk about it. And it's political because the gun lobby's writing our gun laws. And I can remember, I mean, the blowback I got from the NRA was so intense. And now no one bats an eye. We're going to talk about it when there's a mass shooting. So some of it is that cultural change. Mm-hmm. You know, you, I noticed in kind of researching for this that you have no Wikipedia page, um, which I... Wow, I didn't even know that. I don't think I've ever seen be true for anyone so prominent, especially someone in a in a flashpoint situation. Is that... Please don't make one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, so that is not part of a personal security plan or a sort of... Okay, I guess I'm, I'm just asking. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. Uh, there are... Um, there are perhaps some limitations to the mom's brand. I mean, how can you, how do you get over making, you know, how do you get to the point where you can make common cause for those who are not moms, who are maybe are moms, but think, oh, this is a group for like white affluent moms, not me. How have you bridged that divide? So I get asked a lot, like, why aren't we parents demand action or some women demand action? The moms was the idea I talked about with taking on the gun lobby. But the other piece is because we hold so few positions of power, this is the power we can have on this issue. This is how we can have a seat at the table and be able to have influence. So the name, until we're 50-50, the name isn't going to change. But in terms of the piece about diversity, it's so important to us, both politically, um, but also to have diversity, equality, and inclusion. We've made it a key priority Uh I am a white suburban mom, and I was scared my kids weren't safe in school. And so many other women who came into the organization after Sandy Hook looked like me. So we had to work very hard to diversify. For example, last year, over 40% of our new hires were non-white. But after the Parkland tragedy, we tripled in size, and the people who came into the organization looked like me again. So what I learned was this is a never-ending effort that we always have to work on it. We just hired the diversity officer from Planned Parenthood. Her name's Angela Farrell Zabala, and she will be doing the same kind of work for Moms Demand Action because it is such a priority. It's interesting because um, I think after Parkland, um, those kids and, and the movement more broadly really made a concerted effort to be... Um, to make sure that they were talking about the full spectrum of gun violence and how it impacts all kinds of communities. Um, and I'm wondering who for in your organization you think has been the biggest successful public facing. I'm thinking of Lucy McBath yes. as an obvious one. And, um, you know, are there others that you feel like are kind of bridging those gaps to some extent? Yeah, absolutely. So in every community we're in, we work to partner with the women, particularly women of color, who have been on the front line of this issue for decades and have been invisible, so that we are working together and we're lifting up their work. Um, But I think Lucy McBath has been such an important voice because her son, Jordan Davis, a black teen, was shot and killed by a white man because he said his music was too loud. And Lucy immediately became an activist with us in Georgia. And every time we would talk, you know, I would say to her, so when are you running for office? And uh, finally, she said she was going to run and she was going to run for Congress. And she now holds a seat held by Republicans for 30 years. It's Newt Gingrich's old seat. And she is a voice for the black men in this country who are 10 times more likely to be shot and killed than their white peers. The black boys who are 14 times more likely to be shot and killed than their peers. And we are electing more and more women like that. In fact, one of our volunteers uh, this year was the first Muslim ever elected to the Pennsylvania State House, and she is a gun violence survivor. Are school shooting drills a good idea? You know, we everything we do is data and research driven, and we often change our minds or evolve a position, and one of them has been on this issue. Um, there is zero data that show that active shooter drills are effective, especially for children. 
there is data that shows they experience depression and anxiety after these drills. So we now believe that children should not be involved in active shooter drills. And that and if, is this children of all ages or do you... Children of all ages. Um, but that, that teachers, that adults, if they want to drill, that they should. Um, if you look at the drills in this country and how they're evolving, it is almost like uh, lawmakers think our teachers are Rambo or school officials. Again, most of our school officials and lawmakers are men. Most of our teachers are women. And there's actually legislation going through in Indiana right now where they're trying to make it so that teachers can be shot with rubber bullets during an active shooter drill. So they feel the adrenaline of what that kind of situation would be like. It's disgusting and obscene. And um, it, it just shows you that there is a problem in this country. What do you think about the prosecution or uh, attempted prosecution of the school resource officer in Parkland who, um, you know, heard, heard the shots were fired and I guess, you know, the, the evidence is pointing to the fact that at, at some point he just decided to, to pull back and sort of stay safe himself? The victims and the survivors in that shooting almost 100% believe that he should have been arrested and that the videos and the research showed that he could have saved lives by going in. So I support them. That said, looking at it more broadly as an issue, if we're looking at school resource officers, um, the idea that we give easy access to arsenals like semi-automatic rifles, bulk ammo, tactical gear, all of these things that are available to civilians, and then we ask an SRO to be unafraid or to do their job when they think their job is breaking up fights on a school ground. It makes no sense to me. Right. I mean, it's not like the SROs are necessarily like these special forces dudes, right? You know, um, they have a handgun usually probably to the contrary. Right. Um, that's it. I'm, I'm still curious uh, back to school shooting drills, what you guys feel. I mean, even just about the now in colleges when there've been, you know, active shooters or they fear that there's one, there's this sort of run, hide, fight text. And, you know, what level of information or preparation is helpful versus creating unnecessary fear and trauma and even PTSD? Well, again, these active shooter drills, there's no data that shows they're effective. And if adults want to drill, that's fine. But we have created such a culture of anxiety and fear when really, instead of preparing teachers and students to take on active shooters, we should be making sure dangerous people don't have easy access to guns, right? No other country is approaching it in this manner um, because the gun, because too many lawmakers are afraid to stand up to the gun lobby. So let's, let's talk about some political realities given the, the Congress and the state houses we have now. I mean, in the, in the last five years, there's been a lot of energy and activism around uh, gun sense legislation. Um, but, you know, with a new horror every week, many people just feel depressed and that nothing will ever change for the better. So this is an easy softball for you to tell me some, <laughs> some successes that the movement has had. Um, but then after that, maybe yeah. we can talk about what the next steps are and like what the, yeah. what the strategy is. Well, that's the whole point of my book. And the reason that I travel around the country is to explain that we're winning. Uh, I can't tell you how many times people say to me, aren't you sad? Nothing's happened since Sandy Hook. I'm like, I'm sitting here. This happened. Moms Demand Action happened. And all of our wins happened. And I really think that hopelessness and cynicism is dangerous. Uh, You might have seen me fighting with Chris Cuomo uh, after the Virginia Beach shooting in which he said Americans just don't have the will to fix this problem. And it erases the work of women like me who wake up every day and and work on this full-time as a volunteer. Um, We have closed the background check loophole in 21 states. We have disarmed domestic abusers in 28 states. We have passed red flag laws in 15 states. Last year alone... Last year, after the Parkland tragedy, the the laws didn't pass themselves. Our volunteers showed up in state houses, and as a result, 20 states passed stronger gun laws. Nine were signed by Republican governors. All of this momentum is building, and it's like it's like any other social issue in this country. It will point Congress and the president in the right direction. Which of the sort of major planks would you feel would be the most immediately effective in reducing carnage were it to pass? I mean, I'm thinking of 
there's ammo clips, there's, you know, red flag, there's background check, there's assault weapons bans, you know, obviously you want all of those, but which is the one that you think is, is maybe the unsung um, thing that would really make the difference? Absolutely. Background checks. That's really the foundation to every other law. Many of these laws are closing loopholes. Uh, in 29 states, you can buy a gun without a background check from an unlicensed dealer, either online or at a gun show. And it's how dangerous people and domestic abusers and minors and others have easy access to guns in this country. And every state is only as safe as the state bordering them and what their gun laws are like. So once we get background checks at a federal level, which we will, um, then we can go in and do things like close the boyfriend loophole that gives guns to stalkers and to dating partners. We can pass red flag laws um, that allow a temporary restraining order to remove guns from someone who's a danger to themselves or others. We can close the Charleston loophole, which allows you to get a, back- a gun without a background check if it doesn't clear in three days. There's so many loopholes and there's so many laws that sort of build on top of each other, but background checks are the foundation of it. This is, you know, notoriously something that upwards of 80% of Americans say that they support, and I think that includes a vast majority of gun owners and even pretty um, adamant gun owners. So what, on some level, I don't really understand the gun lobby's resistance to this. It's not that big of a sales issue, or is it? It is. Um, the the NRA has convinced its members and, and groups to the right of the NRA. It's so important to remember that almost every state has its own version of the NRA, but on steroids. Where I live, they're called the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, and they believe any law is an infringement on the Second Amendment and a slippery slope to their guns being confiscated. So the NRA realized in the early 2000s that they were selling more guns to fewer people. And the only way to maintain their profit margin, because the average gun owner is aging out demographic of white man over 60, that they would have to arm every generation and every segment of the population in order to recoup those losses. And how do you do that? You insist on guns on college campuses. You arm teachers. You pass something called permitless carry. You expand stand-your-ground laws. This idea of guns for anyone, anywhere, anytime, no questions asked. There are not that many arms manufacturers in the United States. Um, we did a big package getting in all of to their backgrounds a few years ago. I am still surprised that these folks, almost all of whom are men, um, are not better known um, for what they basically thrust into our society. Are you? How is that another role the NRA plays to sort of be the the shield for those folks? I, I think that is the case, um, but. What is is fascinating, as you know, is that there is this Trump slump right now and that gun manufacturers are about $100 million in the hole, given that there's no boogeyman in the White House to make people afraid every time there's a mass shooting. And that has resulted in a very weakened NRA who who serves as the tip of the spear for these gun manufacturers. Um, And so these gun manufacturers are... Some of them are going out of business. I read about one the other day that had invested heavily in Hillary Clinton's campaign, hoping that she would win so that they could leverage having a Democratic president in office. <laughs> Maybe this brings us to uh, white fragility. White <laughs> <male> fragility. Um, <laughs> Toxic masculinity. Someone had a piece today. I saw you were tweeting it, um, and there was a great line in there. I think it was a salon piece that, um, that you know, the guns are basically a pacifier for a certain segment of, of white men, um, that it's sort of the fears are stoked by the NRA and the gun is the pacifier that they're given. And as an a organization run by women and by moms, I figure you have another binky that you can... Um... <laughs> oh my God, I love... I'm so stealing that line. <laughs> uh, you know, but, I, but really, I, I, I wonder if there's a, there's a cultural, psychological issue that we can crack somehow without it being just reduced to political tribalism? You know, I, we don't have to worry about convincing this vocal minority of gun extremists to come to our side. We don't have to. When almost 80% of Americans support stronger gun laws, we need what has been a silent majority to no longer be silent. We need to use our voices and our votes on this issue. If we do that, then they can you know, do whatever they want, that vocal minority. Um, the problem is if that vocal minority is in your family or living next door to you, and then you might have to have more considerate conversations. But 
there is an element of fragility and toxic masculinity and, and sort of the last gasps of power when you see the democratic, the, the demographic shift that is coming at us as a country. But every country is home to misogynists and bigots and racists. Only America gives them easy access to an arsenal. Um, we were just talking a little bit about the, the tribalism, you know, it, on the one hand, one of the great successes of the gun reform movement is that most Democratic politicians, not all, but most, are going to be for it, at least up to a point. But does that also mean that in the times that we're in, that that's driving Republicans more into the arms of uh, the NRA? Are you seeing we that? Have not, we have seen just the opposite. So as I mentioned last year, nine Republican governors signed stronger gun laws. Um, we see these conversations being more effective across the aisle. We completely shut down the NRA's agenda this year in the state of Arkansas. Let me repeat that. In the state of Arkansas. <laughs> and many of those lawmakers have said that the NRA has become too extreme. They said that on the record in, in places like Arkansas. So the fact that the there, there are two things happening. One is we said at the beginning our job was to shine a light under the refrigerator and force the cockroaches to run out at the NRA. And we have done that. We have shown how toxic their agenda is. The other thing is we've created this grassroots army so lawmakers know when they do the right thing, we'll have their backs. When they do the wrong thing, we'll have their job. And those two things in conjunction have completely shifted this issue. And it is why the NRA took down all of their grades right before the midterm election, their A through F grades, because they knew that an A was a scarlet letter and not a badge of honor. And we put them all right back up on our website <laughs> because we want everyone to know where their candidates stand on this issue. What's the Democratic field looking like? I mean, we have... It's very big. It's very big. There, I, we don't have to discuss very all large. 23, but <laughs> in the sort of top yeah. tier, um, who's good on gun reform? Who's not so good? I mean, pretty much everyone is excellent. I mean, there's varying levels of excellence. And that is a sea change in American politics. When I talk about the fact that we're winning, just a few years ago, this issue was the third rail of American politics, guns. And I give Hillary Clinton a lot of credit, but I'm also assuming it pulled well, that she talked about gun reform all the time. And she traveled with mothers of the movement. Mm -hmm. Lucy was a member of that. She knew that this was an issue that women in particular would vote on. And that has continued because of our organization in part. We're seeing these candidates compete to see who can be the best. I think four or five of them so far have come out with really interesting, innovative policies. Um, I will wait to comment specifically until we get the results from our Gun Sense candidate questionnaires back. We've just sent them to all the presidential candidates. And then we'll give that distinction out, and it will inform who we endorse. I think historically, though, it's fair to say that, that Bernie and, and Kirsten Gillibrand, or two I can think of offhand, again, I can't remember all 23, but who have, who have not particularly been known for, compared to other Democrats anyway, for kind of supporting gun reform movement. Do you, have you seen that change? Well, certainly with Kirsten Gillibrand. So she had an A rating from the NRA, and she now has an F. And she has talked at length about how meeting gun violence survivors, particularly the mothers of gun violence victims, has informed her opinion and completely changed her mind. And she's been very vocal on this issue. Uh, Bernie Sanders' track record on this issue hasn't been great, but he too seems to have had a change of heart and mind and is working on this issue. So again, I don't think there's any candidate who isn't doing the right thing on this issue. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. So given that we have, you know, a house that's probably mostly aligned to kind of push things forward and as with so many other issues, a Senate that is a roadblock and a president who's whatever he is. Um, <laughs> How he's a stable genius. <laughs> he's very, very stable genius. Um, he, how, how do you guys plan to keep this kind of in the top tier of issues yeah. for people um, on the federal level when, it, you know, it's kind of hard to, you have a whole bunch of candidates who probably mostly agree or 
we'll say that. Yeah. Um, how do you keep that, that kind of pressure on and that showing up, you see the audience right here in the red shirts. It's exactly what we do all the time across the country. We don't just show up at gun bill hearings in state houses. We also show up at town hall meetings and all the candidate forums, not necessarily to support the candidates, but to put this issue in front of people and to continue to force them to speak about it. I mean, I can remember we showed up at a Ted Cruz event um, to put pressure on him after the Santa Fe shooting, and he took a picture with us. And guess what ended up in his campaign ads? Picture of him with Moms Demand Action volunteers, even though he doesn't seem to support anything that we stand for. Um, it's confusing to me. He's but been sending a lot of mixed signals yes, lately. Yes, a lot of. I saw his tweets today. <laughs> yes, but you know, I I think that that the value of having this grassroots army of hundreds of thousands of volunteers mm-hmm. in every single state is that they show up and they are constantly putting pressure on candidates and on lawmakers and saying, not only where are you on this issue, but how are you prioritizing it. Uh, in the green room, we were talking a little bit about the importance of Virginia. Um, they just had a primary. You had some some candidates and volunteers that did quite well. Why is Virginia in particular so important this year for your movement? Well, we lost a gun sense majority by a very slim margin. In fact, the determination of who controlled the Virginia General Assembly was the a film coin. Canister. Yes, a, a <laughs> coin toss, uh, which we lost, but. This year, every single seat is up for election, and it's the NRA's backyard. We have a real opportunity to pass stronger gun laws, given who the governor and the leaders are in that state. Uh, we have five volunteers who made it through primaries last night. And, and that's another piece of this, which is that we talked about women moving from shaping policy to making it. In the last election, 40 ran, volunteers and gun violence survivors from our organization, 17 won. And we have so many more who are looking forward to the next election, whether it's Virginia or 2020. Now, you're um, part of the Everytown organization that kind of was Michael Bloomberg taking your group and his group. And there also some other elements all kind of under under this big umbrella. I'm curious, does any part of this umbrella do polling on this issue in particular? And, and are those polls public facing? Yeah, some of them, most of them are. We share a lot of that data externally to inform candidates, to inform the public. Um, One thing that I thought was really interesting recently that was in our poll was a CNN poll, which showed that this is the third most important issue to Democratic voters going into 2020. It didn't even make the top 10 a few years ago. Healthcare. It was, I think it was climate change, healthcare, gun safety. Interesting. Um, and, and so we will keep doing polling because what's so important just to show, in particular with women, that this has broken into the top three issues. So it's, it's not in any way polarizing that it gets people to the polls. So Bloomberg is on the pulse of two of the top three issues? That's right. That's all, all um, I, I'm going to go look at the crosstabs of that poll tonight. <laughs> um, do, does that, and does that, do you see any interesting, I mean, this is sort of like, like candidate polls where this person's my favorite, but what's probably more interesting in the polls coming out re-candidates is what's their number two. I'm wondering, you're third overall, but are you seeing any other broader patterns of demographically where your numbers go up or down? Yeah. Well, definitely among women, um, especially among women of color. And especially among Democrats, which is no surprise to anyone. But what I think is most interesting about the polls is, as you said, the common support among most Americans, including gun owners, including NRA members, who actually would be in favor of a background check. Um, That is so contrary to what the leadership of the NRA tells us. Should Columbine High School be raised to the ground? You know, I always defer to victims and survivors on these issues, but I've heard over and over again that it should. Uh, Mother Jones has done some amazing investigative work through Mark Fullman and others that shows that so many mass shootings in this country are copycats, that they're done by people who emulate or want infamy like the shooters at Columbine. And if I were a parent, I would certainly want that school gone. Do you think the media has gotten better about doing things like not using the shooter's name and not sort of endlessly delving into what their motivation is because it's usually some combination of the same things? I do. Um, I think No Notoriety, which was started by Karen Teeves, whose son Alex was shot and killed in the Aurora 
movie theater shooting. She has been amazing and um, started the hashtag no notoriety, educated reporters, other survivors have done the same thing. And so often what you hear now, even among law enforcement, when they have a press briefing after a horrific shooting, which is you're going to hear me mention the shooter's name once. And that's it. I'll refer to him as the gunman or the shooter from now on. And I think that combined with the reporting that you all are doing, showing that when you do give them attention, it just inspires other people who have easy access to guns to commit similar crimes. Back to this um, toxic masculinity. I, I think the thing that's really kind of terrifying is seeing how the kind of white nationalism and the most um, virulent men's rights movement stuff is recombining with uh, with people who, you know, end up being mass shooters. And I, I'm wondering if there's any data points that you feel that the public should know about that. Well, when you look at violence, particularly violence against women, when there's the history of a mass shooter is revealed, it almost always includes violence against women. It's definitely a red flag. And it's why it's so important to keep guns away from people who have violence in their histories, particularly violence against women. Um, and it's, again, when you have the vast majority of your lawmakers are men, um, it becomes so important, I think, to women to pull the levers of power available to them. And right now, that's our voices, our votes, our spending power, until we have equal representation. But again, every nation is home to toxic masculinity. If you look at Charlottesville, many of those people were open carrying. Uh, the governor said they had more access to weapons and more sophisticated weapons than the police force did. That is a recipe for disaster. The, um, the NRA has, uh, I think, particularly done a good job of stoking those fears. Why do you think they hired Dana Losich? <laughs> oh, Dana Lash. I could talk about Sorry. her for a long time. Um, you know, Dana Lash was for a long time sort of just someone trying to sell guns and make her place in the world as this controversial figure who would do it around the Second Amendment. And then I was like, oh, we like her. Uh, and they hired her. And I think she was supposed to come on and sort of soften things with this being a mom and being a woman. Um, I don't think that was successful. She's she's incredibly uh, vitriolic and often spreads misinformation that's easily shown that she's not telling the truth. I think, given that we are finding out now that she's hired by Ackerman, yeah. which is such an interesting twist to things, um, her days on NRA TV may be numbered. So for those of those folks who have maybe haven't followed this so closely... Um, the NRA is going through this this really ginormous scandal where basically part of their organization funded a PR firm that made NRA TV and did a whole bunch of other things and essentially kind of took more than those numbers make sense. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you guys yet see that, that that kind of corruption scandal within the NRA is reverberating amongst rank-and-file members who maybe, you know, aren't the most virulent people even. Yeah. We're seeing board members resign. We're seeing uh, members, very prominent members, write open letters about the misspending of money. So the NRA is under investigation right now for a couple reasons. One, it's ties to Russia. Um, where did the $30 million come from for Donald Trump and the other 20 for other elections in 2016? And then they're under, under investigation for self-dealing. So basically uh, giving money to board members, friends, family, friendly contractors, um, Italian suits and private jet travel as well for Wayne LaPierre. So all of this has, has really made them um, very vulnerable. And the AG of New York has the power to take away their tax-exempt status. Um, but she also has the power to remove the board members and to uh, actually remove the leadership of the NRA. So it will all be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I would never count the NRA down and out. I mean, they weren't in, a, in great shape in the 90s, and all they needed was a Democratic president to come back and use to sell guns. But I want to take advantage of the fact that they're down and out right now. <laughs> do, you, do you think the Maria Bettina scandal was more about the... I'm always interested in which way we think this was working. The Russians were obviously trying to gain influence amongst 
particularly conservative circles, and what better way to do that than through the NRA? At the same time, why did the NRA really want to go over to Russia? Was this, again, about forging sales? Like, what's your... What's your interpretation of, of what to make of this whole Well, element? first of all, I would say Maria Butina was possibly the worst spy in the history of Russia. <laughs> There's like all these pictures of her, you know, with Republicans and NRA officials. Um, I think that it was a quid pro quo. I mean, John Bolton was having, he was the head of an international committee at the NRA. Um, he was going and making videos with this woman. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, the NRA leadership are a bunch of grifters. And this was really all, as so much is with the NRA, about greed. And they saw a way to get easy, dark money. Um, you know, you mentioned that back during the Bill, Bill Clinton's administration that, that they kind of got on their heels. And the, the mythology of that is by passing the assault weapons ban, that is the thing that then led to their resurgence. Do you think that that history is is it is that the rhythm like Democrats come in NRA does better or is part of what we're learning about the NRA complicating that kind of picture a little bit? I do. You know that was a mythology. I, I think a lot of that was actually some health care votes as well. It wasn't. It, you can't blame um, the Democrats' loss all on the NRA in the '90s and, and the bills they passed, but. Again, when you expose the NRA for what they are, when you make them toxic to lawmakers, you see the stranglehold loosened on our lawmakers finger by finger. Uh, Pat Toomey, a senator and a Republican, um, recently said, he's from Pennsylvania, he said that if H.R. 8, the background check bill that just passed the House, got a vote in the Senate, it would pass by 60 votes. Lindsey Graham, of all people, recently said the Second Amendment is not a suicide pact. So these are these are inklings that the NRA's plan, which I think was to elect Donald Trump, come in and immediately pass their priority legislation, which, thank you, we stopped them from doing. Uh, they had a Republican president, Republican Congress, couldn't do it. Their plan was to pass that, the, that legislation to make it easier to sell guns, and then to elect a Democrat, or that ele- a Democrat would be elected, and then they could use that president to sell guns, right? That was their hope. And none of that is playing out for them. So we're going to take questions from the audience in a, in a few minutes. I'm going to ask you kind of one last but but pretty tough question, um, uh, just emotionally, which is, um, you know, during the Iraq war, the height of it, there was a lot of talk about how if we saw pictures of the carnage, that Americans' attitudes about that war would have changed much quicker than they did. And I've started to see some survivors talk a little bit about this, but I have wondered, at least since Newtown, if not before, if parents ever chose uh, to distribute photos of their children or loved ones, what kind of impact do you think that that would have on this? And nobody, of course, can make them do it or urge them to do it, but I... I just wonder, you must have thought about this. Well, we know that the photos of Emmett Till were incredibly important in swaying public opinion. Um, And we know that actually a Sandy Hook family did bring lawmakers, the governor and others, into the room where her son's body was and say, look at my son. This is what our gun laws did to him. And she did that in private. At the same time, I talked to so many survivors who say that that is their worst nightmare, that everything has been taken away from them through gun violence, and that the one thing they have left is their privacy and the memories they have of their children and the way their children looked. So many of them don't even want you to use their photos for just their photos of them from being children uh, when we talk about marking these horrific shootings. And I have become close to Nelva Marquez-Green, whose daughter, Anna, was shot and killed in Sandy Hook. And she is vehemently against this idea. So again, as someone who has not experienced gun violence, I always have to defer to the families. It was interesting that I think something similar happened after Parkland, where lawmakers were brought into uh, one of the classrooms and the bodies weren't still there, but, you know, enough... enough, uh, horror was still quite evident and it's and in my memory of it in any way that some of the most um, opposed to kind of changing things 
did an about face pretty quickly in that moment. Well, I think that speaks to the difference between men and women too, because women don't, don't have to see that to make change. You know, we, we feel it because there are children. And the idea that you would have to see that to make change, is, I don't really understand. Okay, so I'm sure some of you have questions back there. I will just remind you guys that um, we don't have that much time, so please, a question, not a manifesto. <laughs> and um, thank you. I'm going to get please, that T-shirt. Please begin. Shannon, thank you. Times 80 million, oh. I think. Um, so I hope this is a fair question. I'm asking it because it's what my head and my heart keep coming back to. Um, so thank you for talking about that we are winning and that was so inspiring and gave me a lot of hope. But what will it look like when we've won? It's a great question. I think of it much like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They were able to, in less than a decade, accomplish all that they had set out to do in terms of state and federal laws. But they never stopped showing up. They still show up today because you have to protect those gains. Anytime there's a special interest that has taken hold of our country, it's really never over. And that's why I say this is a marathon, not a sprint. You don't get into this work thinking you're going to change it overnight. It's going to take several election cycles to get to the place we want to be. And then once we get there, we have to protect those gains. But I have no doubt it will happen in the near future. So hang in there. <laughs> I want to echo that thank you. Um, it's really powerful. I'm curious, um, you know, you started with a Facebook post and now you're here and I'm sure it's in your book, but I'm just curious along the way the you know, what were the steps to organizing and the highs and lows along the way and what kept you going? Well, the good news is that's all in the book uh, and the proceeds go to gun violence prevention organizations. You know, I never imagined that an online conversation would become an offline movement, but it is really testament to type A women all over the country who uh, started Googling me and emailing me and calling me and saying, you know, I want to do this where I live. And they really did. You know, I'm a full-time volunteer, and all of our volunteers work so hard. It's almost like a, another job for some of us. And I think that energy um, and all of the amazing expertise, the time and the talents that all of these people have brought to the table is what made it go. And, and there's a chapter in the book called Building the Plane as You Fly It. We didn't wait to be experts. You know, I had so many people tell me, like, you're not the right person, and there's already something like this. Don't do this including my husband, who <laughs> was like, are you sure you want to do this? But it's really all about not waiting and jumping in when you're passionate about something. And, and you can make it happen if you have the right people at the table. Thank you again. I would like to echo what everyone else has said, but it seems like the optics from the NRA and the opposition should be so aligned here that the optics of a mass shooting aren't good for anyone. Do you feel like there's any leadership right now at the NRA that might be willing to work with your organization? Is there hope or do you think they all need to go and there need to be a completely new wave of individuals? I mean, if you, want to, if you want to join an organization for responsible gun owners, it's now Moms Demand Action. Uh, you know, so many of our volunteers are gun owners or they're married to gun owners. There's 400 million guns in this country. We talk about gun safety all the time through our Be Smart program. Um, there is no one who is a leader right now at the NRA that seems to feel that they would moderate. I mean, I thought it would happen after the Sandy Hook shooting. You know, remember they had a press conference two weeks later and everyone thought, okay, they're going to come to the middle. And in fact, they doubled down. Um, they are lobbyists. They are motivated by profit. And I don't think there's any turning back for the, the current leadership. I'm a first grade teacher, and I was in a situation that I thought it was a real situation and not a drill. I was inspired by you tonight by saying that these drills, which in my heart I know are not good for children or anybody, I'm going to speak before school boards, and I encourage people and city councils, if with a few words, what could you help me say to these people that we need to change this? So thank you for being a teacher. It's, it's 
everything we do is based on data and research. So all of it is available. We have a new report out that you can find at everytown.org. It will give you all the information you need to go in and have these conversations with people to show that these drills are not effective. Um, we talk all the time to PTAs and to school boards. Um, I think that in addition to talking about responsible gun storage, this is the next step, which is to talk about these active shooter drills. You know, the reality is uh, that a, a door is not going to protect you from the spray of an AR-15 any more than my school desk would have protected me from nuclear fallout in the 80s, right? And, and we spent so much time doing those drills. These drills are terrorizing and traumatizing children. And I think it's on us as adults to start having those conversations. So thank you for doing that. Hi. So Moms Man Action has been around for a while, but Students Man Action is a lot newer. Um, and so as we start to get more integrated into activism in this network, where do you envision Students Man Action, student voices being most effective? How can we, you know, actually lead some sort of charge? Thank you for joining Students Demand Action. I think you will decide that. You know, I I am a, a middle-aged lady, so I, I think you all have ideas and creativity and tools um, that will take activism to the next level, and you will figure out what the best ways are to speak to your lawmakers and to influencers and to leaders about this issue. Um, you're angry as a generation, and you should be. You know, we're acting like uh, these shootings are acts of nature instead of man-made acts of cowardice, and that's what they are. So thank you for what you're doing. I think that what makes me feel most hopeful is if you looked at polling before the Parkland tragedy, this generation was very libertarian in their thoughts about guns and gun ownership. And now we've seen a huge shift in polling that shows they're very much in favor of gun safety. So I am excited to learn from you, uh, just like my kids are trying to teach me how to do Snapchat. I am <laughs> eager to see what you all bring to the table so that we can emulate it. Thank you. Hi. Um, this is I, your. This is her mom, right? Yes, that's my daughter. Um, I'm actually a mother of three, and I came to this issue in sort of a strange way. I didn't know Moms Demand Action existed. I needed to do something, so I used my skill set as a photographer, and I created a video with about 90 kids delivering a plea for safety from gun violence. The video got picked up by several news sources and went around the world. And I was trolled heavily. And I didn't know that that underbelly even existed. And it terrified me because I'm a mother. And there were times when I felt like it was irresponsible for me to step up to the podium and to be speaking out and to have these targets because the, the people not only trolled me, but they, they singled out children in the video and they said horrific things about them. Do you ever have that experience where you feel like, you know what, my job is as a mom first, and maybe this has put too big a target on my back to do this work? I don't think I could do this work that I have taken on. Again, I serve a unique role, which is to be the tip of the spear, and I am happy to do that. I don't think if my family, my children, my husband were afraid for me and wanted me to stop, that I, that I would still be doing it. So that doesn't mean that works for everyone, right? People should be as out front and as public as they feel comfortable. You don't have to be in the public eye all the time to be an activist. There's so many things you can do also behind the scenes, and I'm grateful for what you did, and I'm sorry you had that experience, and I understand that feeling of conflict because we are caretakers, and that's why we are getting involved in this. But I also think that's the intention of that kind of intimidation, right? It's to silence us. And for so long, we have been silent on this issue. And as a result, we've gotten to this place of insanity in this country. So I just have decided that it's going to be like white noise to me. Well, you'll be happy to know that I took the comments from the trolls and I put them into a second video and put it out there. <laughs> that a girl. These are our last three questions. Sure. Hi. <clears throat> Hi, Shannon. I'm a high school teacher. I have two little kids. Sorry, I lost my voice. Um, and I am a mom's OG. I joined right after Sandy Hook. Um, thank you very much for everything you're saying about school shootings and these terrible drills. Um, we have little kids who have nightmares. They pee their pants because of these drills. 
little kids that don't want to wear their favorite light up shoes to school because they're afraid that the bad man is going to see the lights and come and kill them and their, their friends. It's not normal. Um, and we can all do so much more. Thank you to the woman who said she's going to school districts to talk about it. I am a teacher. I live this every day during the school year. The summer is the only time I feel remotely safe until we go to the mall or the movies or a concert or anywhere. Um, so thank you for what you're saying. And everybody in here, you need to talk to your school's principal and school board. And these drills have to stop. At the same time, there are a lot of kids around the country for whom school is the safest part of their day. And I'm wondering, since California already has such good gun laws, people here are probably wondering, what can we do locally? I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what can everyone in this room do yep. to get their hands on one of these shirts and join this badass army. Most of us are perimenopausal, so we cry a lot in this organization. <laughs> the drop of a hat. Thanks for that, Caitlin. So close. Um, So a couple things. You do live in a state with pretty good gun laws. They could always be better. And we work every year to tighten them by going to Sacramento. But there's something called the Gun Sense Action Network, where we make calls into other states, especially red states, to educate them about ballot initiatives or candidates or issues or elections. Um, it's an incredibly effective way to get involved in this issue. In fact, I think it's how we passed a ballot initiative in Nevada, just by the slimmest of margins, was because we constantly were visiting and making calls. Um, the other piece of it is that when we talk about community partnerships, the amazing volunteers in California recently embarked on a campaign to get Governor Newsom to add funding to something called CalVIP. CalVIP funds community programs. They do a lot of violence interruption, intervention. Uh, for example, if you're familiar with Youth Alive in Oakland, it's an amazing program that trains teens to go into schools and interrupt violence, gun violence specifically. And because of the Moms and Men Action Volunteers campaign here, uh, he tripled that funding. In, in the latest budget, which is 20, from 9 million to 27 million. It will make a huge difference. So, but the very easy way to get involved is, and I won't think this is rude if you want to get your phone out, but to text the word join to 64433. And because we're type A, someone may even call you back before you leave this building and invite you to an event near you. Text join to 64433. Hey, Shannon. Um, so you mentioned this movement beginning with Sandy Hook and kind of how you felt at that time. Um, and I can remember watching President Obama address the country after that tragedy and feel his anger and sadness. And I felt such disappointment that an executive order wasn't issued or something large. And then, you know, I'm very aware of the Second Amendment. You see New Zealand, the PM, stand up the day after their massacre and say this will change. And so I guess... Considering the Second Amendment, what is it about the United States that we have to endorse so many of these and then still kind of chip away with movements like this? Do you have any insights there? Yes, it's, it is the NRA, full stop. No other country has an intractable gun lobby that has amassed hundreds of millions of dollars in power to protect gun manufacturers. That is it. And so many people say, well, nothing happened after Sandy Hook, and yet... We had the same Congress the day before that we did after. It was a Congress that was beholden, too many of them, to the gun lobby. What we had to do, which we have to do on every issue in this country, whether it's drunk driving or opioid abuse, um, cigarette smoking, whatever it is, you have to build a political powerhouse that can go toe-to-toe with that special interest. And it doesn't happen overnight. And so to think that these lawmakers were going to do something differently than they had done was never realistic. We had to do the unglamorous, heavy lifting of grassroots activism, which so many women are familiar with in this country, unpaid labor, that would ultimately protect our children. And it's amazing to me that we've done it in less than seven years, the fact that we have become so powerful in our own right. So I get that there are setbacks and there are disappointments. There's a whole chapter in the book called Losing Forward. You get involved in this activism and you're going to lose, but you you learn from those losses. Failure is feedback and you win the next battle. So we'll win the war. Thank you so much for your incredible work with this. Um, I remember I was pregnant during Sandy Hook with my first child, and I just can't believe how many times um, I've heard about gun violence to children, especially since my child was born. 
um, almost six years ago. And I absolutely agree what the work that you are doing, um, in restricting gun access that we all are doing that I will do more of, (laughs) um, is the most important thing. I wonder on the kind of the next level, how do you, and does this movement interact with any kind of like mental health support across the country? And it almost seems like I know the answer from everything you said today with the NRA lobby (laughs) is perhaps just kind of putting a wall towards that. But I wonder if you have any interaction with mental health issues for the country and especially for maybe young white males. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to say it. So it's an important question. And, and so often mental illness can be used as a straw man in this discussion, particularly by Republicans who then who blame mass shootings and shooting tragedies on mental illness and then never do anything about mental illness. Um, but if you look at the data, only 11% of shooters show any kind of mental illness before the shootings take place. And we also know from data that people with mental illness are much more likely to be victims of violent crime and not the perpetrators. So we have to be careful when we're talking about who is mentally ill versus who just has easy access to guns and, and has committed a crime because of that. Sure, we could definitely increase the amount of support we have in this country for mental illness. Absolutely, particularly when it comes to veterans and gun suicides and people in rural communities um, and in city centers. But at the end of the day, this really is about easy access to guns. Thank you. So, Shannon, it is a, an informed tradition of some longstanding. I'm not quite sure how long. But um, <laughs> we ask all speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? I absolutely believe we will change the world if we elect more women to positions of power. I'm pretty sure you have the crowd on that one. Um, Thank you, Shannon Watts, for joining us here tonight at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. Please join her in the lobby for a book signing of her uh, memoir slash guidebook slash uh, manifesto, um, Fight Like a Mother, How the Grassroots Movement Took on the Gun Lobby and Why Women Will Change the World. I'm Clara Jeffrey, Editor-in-Chief of Mother Jones. A lot of mothers in the room tonight. Good night. Thanks, you guys. (laughs) 